Hello and welcome. You are listening to Gore and Guilty Podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Georgia. And today we're back to our regular true crime episodes and it's a Georgia case that she's going to be talking us through. Do you want to give us any hints today, Georgia? Um, so it's a range of murders and unfortunately it's an unsolved case. So... I don't know, they're a little bit frustrating, but oh, I've spent so long researching this one, so I'm excited. Oh, that's good. Oh, we can expect a, a thorough deep dive in that case, can we? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, heck. Before we go diving, though, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I think it hasn't been too long since we last recorded, and I was trying to rack my brain of what I've done <laughs> in between, and... <laughs> All it seems to have been is researching this case. So it's just been a crime-filled few days, really. But that's been good. It's been good. How about you? What have you been up to? Yeah, I wish I could say I had a crime-filled few days. (laughs) But I haven't. I've been very, very busy with work and had a heavy weekend. But we're still going. That's the main thing. I did have a bit of a weird incident on the weekend, actually. Oh, do tell. Yeah, so when I was walking home from uh, my night out, there was a very nice looking couple sat on a wall. Okay. And uh, the wall is like next to the river. Yeah. The river Taff in Swansea for anyone interested. Uh, in Cardiff, sorry, for anyone interested. Oh, yeah. And as I started walking down the alley, there was this guy in a hood just uh, stood there staring at the couple. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, just... Just stood staring at them. And I, first of all, I just carried on walking. And then after I got like 10 paces down, I was just like, oh, actually, that's really creepy. I should probably go and tell them. So I walked back past the creepy dude who literally hadn't moved. And I said to the couple, like, guys, I don't want to alarm you. But there's this guy down there that is literally just staring at you. And he looks quite menacing. And they just like le- leant forwards and were like, oh my God. Yeah, okay, thank you. And then they just kind of <laughs> jogs away. No, that's so creepy. And I feel like, you know, when there's like a vibe and you have the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you're like, no, there's something off here. Yeah, it felt very, very, very off. He was, yeah, very creepy. And then I had to walk back past him as well after they'd moved away. So I was like, no. oh, please don't hit me. Oh, you've got to be careful. <laughs> well, you may have saved someone's life there, I suppose. Ooh. Maybe. Yeah, let's just say I'm a hero. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> let's just hope he hasn't turned his eyes on you now and is going to be stalking you home. Oh, God. Imagine that opening <laughs> the blinds and the same guy's just staring through the window. Ooh. That would creep me out. No, that'd be awful. <laughs> Oh, dear. Although, maybe it could be quite an interesting episode, if you're like, sorry, Greg isn't here this week, he's been kidnapped by a man in <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think how I don't think I'd be able to do this podcast without you, though, Greg, to be honest. I think it, <laughs> it would probably fizzle out quite quickly, so I'd rather you don't get kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> I could do it remotely from his basement. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe you could do like a live, like, hello, day four. <laughs> Greg, Greg. Oh, dear. <laughs> What a resurgent comeback it would be if and when I'm released. <laughs> yeah, he documented it all. Um, <laughs> oh dear. I've, I know, so it sounds like we've got a pretty long case today, but I was just going to say before we jump into all the crimey shenanigans, 
but we did ask a question and we asked it ages ago and we yeah. just forgot to mention it. Yeah. So the question we asked was, where's the best place to listen to a podcast? And actually, before we do, before we do follower answers, you listen to way more podcasts than me, Georgia. Where's your best place to listen to a <laughs> podcast? Oh, um, I probably tend to listen to the most in the car. So when I'm like driving somewhere from doing like a long distance, I will listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and also they're really good to like cook to or clean to. <laughs> so around mm. the house, I kind of just like if I am doing something and I don't want to watch something on the screen, for example, then I will chuck my headphones in and listen to a podcast. What about you? When where do you listen to your podcasts most? I really don't listen to that many, which is quite shocking because I am a podcaster. I do listen to some, yeah. but the problem I have is that I worry if I listen to them in the car, then I'm going to fall asleep, <laughs> which really? has almost happened before, by the way. <laughs> That's kind of really? put me off doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're scared of it. No. Now I'm fear of the podcasts. And I don't really listen when I'm cleaning just because actually no that does seem like a good place to listen but I normally have to sit down and almost treat it like I'm going to watch a TV program really? so I think that's why I don't watch that many I don't listen to any podcasts like without doing something I always have to be doing something whilst listening to it. I, I, I'd be able to do it but I, I'd feel like I can accomplish like two things at once if I listen to something and like do something I just I can't multitask I can't multitask with podcasts (laughs) I have to because I also I've tried that before as well I've tried doing work and listening to a podcast and then I just yeah I I get sucked into what I'm listening to rather than doing the work and then I'm like an hour's gone by and I'm like oh wait I've only written a sentence (laughs) exactly or I'll be doing work for like five minutes and be like fuck i haven't listened to a single word of the podcast yes that's it yeah i I can't do if i have to read something and listen to something that doesn't work but um but yeah i i like it on long journeys though i feel like it makes the time go quicker because i'm just paying attention obviously to the road but also to like what i'm listening to and just get like yeah i don't know it's enjoyable maybe you need to try it again well i I think that on a drive came up quite a lot in the answers that yeah. people gave us. Doing chores as well, that came up, so you're not Yay. alone, Georgia. There you go. So, some people were just like, anytime. I think those are the, the hardcore podcast fans. They're like, always, All always ready for a podcast. Every day. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> we, had, we had one answer that made me chuckle, which was that they listen to podcasts when their other half is playing the violin. Oh so, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, using the podcast to drown out the sound of violin in the background. Oh, I hope they're or, good. Otherwise, it'd just be painful listening to like true crime and like <laughs> <laughs> in the background. Indeed, I'm sure the quality of their partner's violin playing is top draw. Yeah, and must. if it is, then it's like the soundtrack to the podcast. Oh yeah, see that might be like a beautiful, harmonious thing. <laughs> Indeed. Right, without any further ado, do you want to crack on with this case? I actually don't know what this case is. Tell, you're going to have to tell me all. I know. I kind of wanted to leave a few secrets because, you know. But, oh, it's... I hadn't heard about this one until the other day where I decided to start a, like a podcast series. 
and it oh, okay. is absolutely excellent. It's called The Disappearance of Crystal Rogers. I've watched it on Hey You, so I really recommend it. There's loads of details in there that I haven't included because I've got to condense this into an hour and that's a six-part series. So oh, wow. I also didn't want to take all of their information, obviously, because they put so much work into it and there was so much time and investigation, their own research into it. It really, I was really impressed with how thorough they were. This is the Bardstown Murders, and I will primarily focus on Crystal Rogers' disappearance. However, there are a few more murders that go on. And yeah, so basically, there are four unsolved murders and one disappearance in the space of about three years in this quiet small little town in Bardstown and that is in Kentucky oh well yeah so before 2013 nothing really happened until the 25th of May 2013 so I would like to explain a little bit about I would like to describe a little bit about Jason Ellis so Jason Ellis worked at Bardstown Police Department for about seven years, and he was part Wait, of... Bardstown? Yeah? We've had someone recommend this case. <gasps> have we really? Yeah, we have. Yeah. Oh, no someone way. Someone from Kentucky. What are the chances? Yeah, I just checked when you were saying then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, That's cool, though. It's such a good one. Have you, did you, by any chance, have you remembered the name? I have, yes. Kill Tonya Dead is the name I've got written well, down. Well, thank you very much. Um, Maybe subconsciously, like, it came into my brain, but, oh, what a case. So interesting. <laughs> good recommendation, basically. Yeah, really good. So, Jason Ellis, he worked in Bardstown Police Department for seven years, and he was part of the K-9 unit and was a drugs officer. He was known to be really smiley, life of the party... And just really great to be around. As you can probably already tell, unfortunately he does pass away. But at his funeral, there were many people that he arrested who would wanted to pay their respects to him and told his family what a good guy he was. So that's how much he was respected within this community. The people that he'd arrested were like, no, he's a mate, you know, he's a really good guy. Yeah, that is unorthodox. Yeah. His family members said that he didn't have any enemies. At around 2.30am on the 25th of May 2013, Jason was ambushed and killed on his way home from work. On the day of the murder, he worked from 4pm till 2am. He left the Bluegrass Parkway on exit 34, where he saw the ramp had debris and branches that covered it to the left-hand side of the road. Now, civilians would just drive round it, but that was not in his nature. He stopped and removed the debris from the ramp. Whilst he did this, he was shot multiple times with a shotgun. The assassin was on his left-hand side on a ledge that, o that looked down at Jason, where he was found with his gun unholstered and debris in his left hand. He was discovered by a car passing 
who stopped to help the police officer clear the road until they found his body. So basically, it was all on the left-hand side rather than the right. Most people would just go round it, but it was though it was as though it was intentional that the debris was on the left-hand side because that way he would open the car door because obviously it's in America. That's what they're on. Uh, they're sat on the left-hand side. Mm-hmm. Open the car door, walk round the car to collect the rubber, uh, like the debris that's on the road, and then the mm-hmm. assassin was on that side to shoot him down because if it was on the other side, the car could have blocked his view and and things like that. So it was a clear shot, basically. Uh, okay. And do we think that they were waiting for Jason specifically? Yes, absolutely. So this was definitely a targeted assassination. The way the way that this person would have been sat on the ledge as well, they would have had a clear view of the police car or the car he was driving coming round the corner for quite a while mm-hmm. to then see him stop and then it was a perfect shot, basically. And as you go round the ramp as well, they believe that the offender would have had a car parked slightly ahead, so he would have just been able to hop into that, get to the top, and there's literally two directions where he's got a really easy escape. So it was a perfect executed murder, unfortunately. So we, so it sounds like some kind of hit on on this poor police officer specifically yes yeah and they believe that this is someone that would have known his personal details they would have known his patterns of when he would have finished work which direction he would go home in um like the roads that he would have used and also his behavior in knowing that he would be the kind of person that would stop to clear the road for the rest of the people and unfortunately this one does remain unsolved wow and they, I guess they knew his character too because they knew he'd stop. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or was it? Because, well, yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that that is quite a... You put in a lot of faith that he's going to get out and clear this debris and not just drive around. Like, even if he's had... Even the best people, uh, like, the most selfless people, might have still have had a bad day and been like, oh, fuck it, I can't be bothered. Yeah. No, that's true. I, I do think the way he is perceived by everybody that knew him was that he just was so dedicated to the police work and protecting the public it it does seem as though he would be the kind of person that would do that and um yeah i i mean i think it was a very well executed plan and who knows there may have been other attempts of something like this happening before they you know the final one maybe yeah that's true that's true there was um in the documentary they mention briefly that there was a source it's it's unknown whether the source is you know true or not um but they said that this might have been the third attempt that actually it did go f- the plan did go the way they wanted it to oh wow okay yeah interesting mm. the next case i would like to talk about is the netherlands case the netherlands murders is that in the Netherlands or Netherlands? No, the that's their surname. Yeah, Netherlands. Ah, it Netherlands. makes more sense. I was like, I thought we were in Bardstown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So, this case is particularly sad. I, they're all sad. I just think this one's so brutal that 
yeah. So there will be a couple of trigger warnings. On the 21st of April 2014, mother and school teacher Kathy Netherland, aged 48, and daughter Samantha, aged 16, were brutally murdered inside their home. Their bodies were discovered by their grandfather. Samantha was a sophomore at Bardstown High School, so they also lived in the same vicinity. Okay. There, appe- there appears to be no specific motive. The offenders entered the house from the front door, and this was unusual because if they had known the house, the main entrance that was used was the side door. There were three entrances of this house that had been diff- built at different times, and the front door just really wasn't used because it had an old door and it was very difficult to use, so it was always the side door. However, there was no forced entry. So, trigger warning. Kathy was killed first, and she was stabbed and shot in the living room, which was by the front door. And Samantha was killed in the utility room, where her throat was slit and she was stabbed. It seemed as though she was trying to make her way quickly out of the house using the back door, and it was thought that there may have been more than one offender's because of her being like caught before she exited the house. So she would have heard her mother and then she would have ran and someone else got her, basically. God, so it could be more than one killer. In, yeah, exactly. They do think that this potentially would have had more than one. It was also said that there may have been torture involved where they would have been tied to chairs beforehand and... There were many broken bones in like the facial regions. So it, it was like a really, really brutal murder. Oh God, so even though the daughter's running away, she's potentially already been the one that's found in... Is the daughter that's found in the utility room, right? Yes, yeah. So she's she made her way to the back door to try and get away. She's been being tortured before that. You're right, because it was said that it was the daughter that had a lot of the bones in her face that had been unfortunately broken so it does seem as though yeah you're right um there i didn't read too much into the details of it but apparently it was a very brutal scene as you can imagine but um but yeah i guess so i think they were probably tortured before how sad yeah and the source as well that you know that whether it's the, I don't know how reliable the source is. The police were going to investigate further into what this source was saying, but um, even now there's been no arrests, so I don't know how reliable it is. But they were saying that the people he believes that the people um, used a cell phone jammer, so it's it cuts off all the s- cell signal in that area. So even if they had mobile phones and were trying to call. It just wouldn't have happened, so there was no way of reaching out to the outside world. Um, so it, it's just a very horrific case, basically. Yeah, that sounds it. There was one other sister, Holly. Uh, she wasn't in the house at the time, and unfortunately, Holly and Samantha, they lost their father less than a year ago um, to cancer, so it's just Holly now. So it's just, uh, just so, so tragic. Poor Holly, that's horrible really horrible so there were rumours around the town of gangs 
and Kathy and Samantha were very vocal about it in public places and at the school. And there believes to be possibly a connection to this. One source believed that it was a gang initiation. Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting theory. I don't know really. I obviously don't know that much about the case, but uh, these these gang initiations. I mean, I don't know what Bardstown's like, but um, I'll get yeah. I will. I will explain further about why that um, why that might be more of a possibility, but. Um, but they're definitely, yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of rumours, a lot of things that people don't really want to touch upon because they seem very scared in this town. But it is really small. It seems a bit too personal, though, the attack. It's either personal or the person doing it is like a full-blown psychopath. There seems to be a lot of rage into it, and obviously they use multiple methods. But um, there was blunt force trauma as well. I, I think that, that the crime, it was very angry uh, i think there's a lot of rage in it um it does seem very personal but there was just no motive so everybody that was around them were obviously questioned and it just wasn't enough evidence and again those two cases are also unsolved very both cases very calculated killers if yeah. they've uh, the debris and the uh you know the fact that with the netherlands family they have managed to take the time to tie them up and torture them. And if there was a cell phone jammer too, yeah, it shows that someone's really thought thinking about, about, it. about it. Yeah, very planned. Yeah. So we move on to Crystal Rogers. She was thirty-five years old and a mother to five children. She had a boyfriend called Brooks Hook. And on the 3rd of July, 2015, so bearing in mind this is all still within, so the first one was 2013, we're now in 2015, it's, it is a really small little community. Um, on the 3rd of July, 2015, Sherry, Crystal's mother, got a text from her granddaughter asking if she'd spoken to Crystal. On the 4th of July, Sherry called and left a voicemail on Crystal's phone and called around to see if anyone had seen her or spoken to her. All of them had said no. This was very unusual for Crystal as she always responded. Her sister messaged Sherry to see if she'd seen Crystal as she was worried as she'd been trying to get hold of her for two days. Hmm. That was when the mother, Sherry, knew something was wrong. On the 5th of July, they go to the police station to file a missing persons report. Whilst her father, Tommy, and brother, Casey, were there at the station, they overheard Crystal's ex-husband's son reporting a car that had been left on the Bluegrass Path Parkway. So the Bluegrass Parkway is like this highway that goes straight through. Um, it's just, it's like, like our motorways kind of thing, but it's really straight and then you just kind of come off it. Was it Crystal's car? Tommy and Casey set off together straight away when they overheard that to go and see whether the car was Crystal's, and it was. Uh, what? Co- Wait, so it was her ex-husband's son reporting this car, and he didn't know, or he claimed he didn't know it was her car? Well, no, I think he did. I think he said, I recognise that car, I'm going to go in and report that, um, because he recognised it. Um, they overheard this conversation, so before the police could even get out there, Crystal, um, 
Casey and Tommy got there and they then called it in again to the police station and went, this is Crystal's car. We just reported that she's missing. So there is nothing suspicious between the ex-husband's son. It just, it, it might just prove that it's a small place, but, um, or that he recognised the car, but he doesn't come up again within the case. Interesting. Interesting. It had been abandoned at the 14 mile marker, and today there is a missing person sign which has been placed at the precise spot that it was discovered. They know that Crystal had not been driving this vehicle. Even though her phone and purse were left in the car, as well as the keys left in the ignition. How can they know that? So, Casey and Tommy looked at the car and instantly went, no, Crystal cannot have been driving this. Because Crystal had a really very specific way of driving the car. Like, her front seat would be a certain angle and her leg would always be sat on one side. Like... It was a very unusual way that she would sit in her car. And when they saw the vehicle, the seat was like right up, upright and like was completely not the way that Crystal would drive it. So they knew that when they looked inside that it must have been driven by someone else, not Crystal. Oh, okay, that's pretty good detective work. Yeah, yeah. If she's, uh... well, unless, yeah, okay, it seems more likely that someone else would have driven it then if they've... If the chair is in the wrong position, I, you know, I'm a tall person. I wouldn't be able to sit. I'd have to adjust my chair to the the seat yeah, if I need it to be. Exactly. If you were to drive my car, I think she was like a similar. I think she was like five foot eight or something. Um, probably similar height. Well, bit a little bit taller than me. But you know, you so the chances are like you would have to adjust your seat if you, you couldn't drive my car without adjusting it. Yeah, exactly. And and people would be able to see if I adjusted your seat. Yeah, exactly. Especially when she did have such a, a funny way of having the seat as well. So they knew straight away that this was not, not right. They also, they went through the theories of maybe she had a flat tyre, so she pulled over. And they did realise that the back tyre was low and it had made a black tyre mark on the road showing that it was close to blowing but Casey said that she would never have pulled over on a road like this um, for the tyre wasn't even like close to being on top of the rim and that she had plenty miles left in it and two it was far too dangerous he recalled a time where she had a tyre far worse than this one and she'd driven on the bluegrass parkway all the way home for safety before changing the tyre. So they're just... He, he was so adamant that she, it's not her behaviour to pull over when her tyre wasn't that bad. What's weird, though, is that who on earth would just drive her car there and go, though? Who knows? So when the police arrived, they went down the verge of the road for about ten minutes, and then they returned and took the car for analysis. So, job done, 10 minutes. Good work. That was it? That was all they did? Pretty much. Yeah, oh. so they weren't very impressed with that. But, yeah, so that, that's kind of, yeah, how it was described. That they went down, had a little nosy around, see if they could see anything, and then came back up. 
So Crystal's family had not been returned her mobile phone as it was still part of the investigation. However, they had been given back her vehicle, which I would also think that would be a vital part of the investigation. Hmm. So when they received the car from the police station, it looked exactly the same as when they took it. It had all the rubbish inside the car still, which had not been bagged up for evidence. And when they opened the boot, it was still covered in grass and the carpets had not been vacuumed or processed. Basically, the car hadn't been processed properly. The police said that they had found one fingerprint on the car. And that was very, you know... It was a small amount of evidence for what that car should have held. You know, that fingerprint might not have been the offender, but um, there would have been Crystal's fingerprints. There would have been more in the vehicle. Now, now this little evidence is not that unusual. And this is because resources are very limited. And Kentucky State Police Crime Lab will only accept 10 pieces of evidence to anal- to analyze. What for one case? For one serious case like a murder case. Oh well. So essentially, if a case had more evidence, say like you know, multiple pieces of evidence more than 10, they would have to pick out 10 pieces that they would want to be sent to the crime lab which might not necessarily come back with the evidence that you want. And this is only in big homicide cases. That's shocking. What happens if they pick the ten wrong things? There's loads of evidence, or loads of forensics or whatever on all the other pieces. Yeah, they can't do it. And remember that this case at this point is just a missing persons case and not a homicide. So, there might not have even been ten pieces. So, if we, I just want to go back and remember how frustrating episode 22 was, which was the unsolved case of Brooklyn Farthing, which happened to be in Kentucky. Indeed. I wonder whether that would have been the same case for her. Possibly. Very possibly. There could have been... Uh, I mean, again, it was like a small town, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and that was in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. One of the biggest factors in that case was not enough evidence. Not only that, in the US at the time of at this time, murder cases closed about sixty percent of the time. So the you know, they were solved sixty percent of the time. Mm. And in two thousand and fourteen in Bardstown, this was the same rating. However, in two thousand and sixteen this rating dropped below forty five percent meaning that if you committed murder in this area, you had an over 50% chance of not being caught. So if you want to commit murder, that's the place to do it. (laughs) It's so shocking, so shocking. Within the documentary, The Disappearance of Crystal Rogers, they do take the car and do a thorough forensic investigation and research And even though the cadaver dog performs a high alert in the trunk of the vehicle, no evidence is recovered from the car. So that's what I mean about this documentary. I really recommend it because they literally take these big pieces of evidence and and pick it apart and really try and see if they can find anything new. So on the 3rd of July, 
there is a Walmart footage of Crystal at the checkouts at 4.36pm. A witness saw Crystal bring the bags back to her house around 5pm. The last person to see Crystal was her boyfriend, 33-year-old Brooks Hook. Brooks, what's that? Now, Hook, Hook, H-O-U-C-K, Hook. I don't know, Hook. I'm guessing. Hook. Brooks Hook. Now, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Brooks. Crystals had actually broken off her previous marriage to be with Brooks. He was considered to be a good father to his child that he had with Crystal, Eli, the little two-year-old. However, the other four children that she had had from previous marriages, he didn't really want to have too much to do with them. You know, he wouldn't really pay for their shopping and their food and stuff like that, as he believed that they were Crystal's responsibility. So, you know, each to their own. But he didn't want to, you know. I'm not, I'm not going to say that's fair enough. I'm just, yeah. In, yeah? Yeah. Fem- <laughs> His family were very well known in the area. They had a really big farm nearby. He also ran for county sheriff. And... Um, friends and family of Crystal would say that their communication with Crystal kind of reduced as their relationship developed. There was a lot more control and I think she actually worked for Brooks, so therefore her money also was kind of very much attached to Brooks. So there was a lot of controls within the relationship but she seemed happy. Yeah. So, as with most investigations, they always pull in the boyfriend for a statement, especially him being the last person to see her alive. So, when they bring him into the questioning, he gives a written statement of the events. Apparently, he is very cooperative with the police, so they, you know, he does try and help out. Okay. Well, he did. However, he did Chris- try out for. A, he wanted to be a sheriff, right? So. You'd yeah, hope that he was um, a morally upstanding person, supposedly. Hmm. Crystal's family were suspicious of Brooks. Sherry recalls that on the day that she went to go and report her daughter missing, she bumped into Brooks. He rolled down the window of his car and the conversation goes as follows. Sherry, have you seen Crystal? No. Have you been in a fight? No. The mother thought that if they'd been in a fight, then it would be reasonable that she may have gone somewhere to, like, cool off. Then she told him that she was going to file a missing report for her daughter, his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And she said that he looked as though she could have been talking about anybody else. You know, he didn't really want to know. He just responded saying, yeah, I think you should do that. Oh, so he wasn't worried or anything? No, not at all. It was just kind of like, yeah, I think you should do that. Fine. If you want to. He didn't offer to go with her or anything like that. And then she saw baby Eli in the back seat, which he never took him anywhere. And she thought it was really, really odd. It really struck a chord. Mm. He didn't really have a big role in the searches for his missing girlfriend. He claims that he was doing a lot behind the scenes. And that's why he wasn't very visible during the big searches. 
Crystal's parents decided to contact Nancy Grace, which is, I guess, is a show that everybody watches in America. I, I, I would imagine it's a bit like Good Morning Britain or something like that. Oh, really? I've not heard of it, actually. No, I hadn't. And, and I tried to... In the documentary, they do a little clip of this, and I really recommend people to watch it, but I had a look on YouTube, and I can't find the clip there. But... Basically, she, like, questions him live on TV, and it's quite something. What, Brooks? Yeah. So oh, wow. the parents come on. They've, they've, they've decided that this is a really good way to, to reach out to a wider audience, and the parents do a little bit of an interview, and then Brooks makes an appearance. That's shocking. Yeah. It really... I don't know. Especially when there hasn't been, there is quite a lot of negative light on him at this point. Brooks spoke. He said um, that he had gone to bed and that she was playing games on his her phone. And then at eight a.m., he noticed that she's missing. Just no, randomly noticed at eight a.m. Like, oh, she's gone. Oh, she's not here. Yeah. She said, "Why didn't you report that?" And he said, he does the classic of, oh, that's a really great question. I'm so glad that you asked because, and you know, that like really long winded. And he goes, basically, I wasn't worried at all because they had had some stresses, stresses in their relationship at times. And that how she would cope with this is going to her uh, friend Sabrina's house, who she was very close to. Mm-hmm. And then Nancy Grace goes, how often has she done this? Oh, probably about four to six times. And then she says, they say that some people accuse you for not participating much in the search. And he responds with, he's been working hard behind the scenes because he doesn't want the emphasis, he wants the emphasis on Crystal's safe return home and not his negative comments that are heading his way. So he kind of just angles it that way. So, That's rubbish. Yeah, it it wasn't very reassuring. Um, it kind of just was very much. I'm innocent. I didn't do this. I. It, you know, he he isn't talking about where is my girlfriend. I really hope she's safe. You know, all of these. It, it very. It, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it just didn't sit right. No, it doesn't so, seem like it did. Yeah. Sabrina is her cousin, and she said that she was really shocked to hear this, and that actually over the three years of their relationship, Crystal had visited her twice during an argument with Brooks. The first time, she only stayed for one hour, and the second time, she stayed for two hours before returning home. She had never stayed a night at her house after a fight. So he's just making stuff up, basically. Just doesn't quite add up. Yeah. I'd like to quote a conversation from the documentary. This is how Sabrina found out about Crystal's disappearance. She woke up at 10am and she'd missed a text from Brooks at 9.31am on the 5th of July. It said, How are you doing? And then Brooks texted again, saying, Have you seen Crystal? She thought it was weird because it was really blunt and also he never messages her. 
So she replied saying, no, I haven't. She thought that they may have just had like an argument or something and that he was just, I don't know, messaging her. Yeah. And then at 12.30, her aunt calls asking where Crystal was. And Sabrina then called Brooks to ask where she was, where Crystal was, basically. So her aunt's calling Sabrina going, have you seen her? And then he's go- she's recalling back to those messages and decides, right, I'm going to call Brooks and ask what's going on. Okay. He says, hello. She goes, what's going on? What do you mean? Where's Crystal? When was the last time you saw her? Everyone's calling me, asking where she is. Oh, we went to the farm on Friday night and we went to bed and she was up playing games on her phone and then I woke up and she was gone. Okay, and you haven't heard from her since and you're just calling me now? Bear in mind, this is like, this is Sunday. She's gone missing since Friday. And he doesn't know where she's gone. He literally just hasn't cared that whole time. It just seems that way. She then goes, but she's got Eli. And he went, no, he is with me. She said after that phone call, she started to tear up because she knew something wasn't right. The fact that he had Eli and no one knew where she was. He said it was really weird. I thought some people said he was a good dad. Why is everyone so shocked? I know, but I think that he was a good dad to his... I don't know. It it kind of just said that he was a good father to him, but she looked after all the five kids, her whole life with those children. She was, she would never, never leave them alone. Like, you'd still, you'd still think if he was a good dad, then it wouldn't be so unorthodox for him to have his child. Eli. I know. Yeah. Maybe it's just, he doesn't really have that much involvement, but they didn't want to, they didn't have anything bad to say about him. I don't know. They mm. in the documentary they do have a lot of conversations with friends and other family members as well, and they all kind of have this weird like edge when they speak about him, just mm. like how he's not very sociable with them. He's very quick to move the conversations on and doesn't really engage very well. So I don't know whether he just kind of wants Crystal to sort out all the children. He just gets on with his life. I. I I don't know. I think it's just a little bit odd. Yeah, that is weird. Um, so what's also strange is that five days after Crystal's disappearance, Brooks decides to voluntarily visit the police station for a video interview statement. And this is just really bizarre. It's So I'm going to kind of like quickly ad-lib like brief parts of this interview. Um, mm-hmm. It is all on YouTube. But it is like an hour and 45, so it's oh, a wow. long one. That is a long, yeah. long clip. But it is worth like looking at little bits because it is interesting. So the police officer starts off by confirming his written statement. It says Brooks got home at 5, 5.30, probably closer to 5. Crystal gets home about 5.15. You get back from the store and you're all there at the house from 5.30 till 7 and then you guys leave around 7 o'clock to go to your farm he responds yeah that's fine by me so Crystal, Brooks and baby Eli live all in a residential area and the Hooks farm is about 10-15 miles away which takes about 20-25 minutes drive Mm -hmm. 
So during the interview, he asks, do you know if anybody else was at the farm other than your mum? I don't know. We went out to feed the cows. Did you have a fire that night? Yes, it isn't uncommon. I don't like things to pile up. We, you know, we usually have fires. Okay. Oh, God. He's, he's quite, I don't know, he's really, it's really odd. So as the fire is dying down, so they do have a fire, um, as the fire is dying down, they walk back and forth from the barn, which essentially he is saying he was walking around the farm in the dark whilst it's raining with a baby. This is at night. So that's what he was saying that he was doing on his Friday night. What the fuck? Doesn't seem right. So the fire apparently is dying down as they're leaving and it's about five minutes to midnight. He locks up the trucks and they head home and they get back at about 12.20 and he went to bed first and immediately. As soon as he went there, he went straight up to bed without her. And that she he left her on the sofa, you know, he left her playing games on her phone, basically. So, that's what happened Friday night. Hmm. And then he, so when did you wake up? I woke up between six and seven in the morning and Eli is next to me in bed and Crystal is gone. Okay. Um, I don't know... He's like, I don't know what to think. I don't know where she is. And yes, I called her in the morning. I don't know what time I called her. And he seems really flustered by this. Like, he doesn't know what time. But yeah, I did call her. Of course I called her to ask where she was. But I can't remember exactly what time it is. But yeah, everybody else in this whole documentary and whoever's been investigated knows exactly what time that they called her because it's a vital part of that information to know exactly where Crystal is and whether it will help, basically. Mm. So... The interview is strange, especially being so soon after her disappearance. He really doesn't look stressed or fearful or worried or or checking if they know anything about her safety. He keeps mentioning that if they fight, that she would go to Sabrina's or Brooke, a different person, or a parent's house for a day or half a day. He keeps mentioning that they would always come back together. But what he fails to say throughout this whole conversation is that if they argued in the first place. I was just going to ask that. Like, has he actually said if they had an argument that night? Well, if you remember the first conversation he had with Sherry Crystal's mother, when she was going to go to the police station to um, file the missing persons report, she said, have you had a fight? He went, no. So at no point does he say that we fought, but he keeps talking about how she would go off and... um, like go off to her friend's house whenever they argument argue but they will always come back and in this interview the retired homicide detective actually says that this is what is called an inconsistency it doesn't match with what is supposed to happen like so he then was asked what did you do on saturday well i wasn't in any rush i then had i headed to the farm and then i headed to fabian's house I only caught, and then he says about referring to Crystal again and the phone calls. I only called her a couple times because otherwise it will make it worse. But they weren't in a fight. They won't make anything worse because you haven't said that you were in a fight with her. 
So he's saying, that's why I didn't call very many times. And then he asked, what happened Sunday? I can't remember. And then he breaks down in this sort of weird sort of way. And during this interview as well, the interviewer basically says that the bloodhounds, when they went to her vehicle that was abandoned on the Bluegrass Parkway, there was no scent of her at all. But all her belongings were left in the vehicle. So that also kind of helps with, I don't think she was driving that car. Uh, So the theory is, I guess, that he drove the car there to make it look like she had actually left the house. Yeah, or someone did, yeah. Okay, so I was not anticipating this episode to be as long as it is. So I think I'm going to have to break it down into two parts. The best thing I can do now is kind of give you a little sprinkling of what to expect in next week's episode. So in next week's episode, we will be discussing the fourth murder of this small, beautiful town as well as theories of how and if these murders and disappearances are linked. Not only that, we will go into discussing where the investigation is now, and yeah, we'll just have a little back and forth about what we think happened. But I can tell you what, that this case is unbelievable. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard about it until now, so... I hope you enjoyed it so far, and I hope that it's not too suspenseful keeping you until next week to hear the ending. Before we finish, do you want to run through the socials? Yeah, sure. If you'd like to send your true crime or paranormal stories to us, you can do that on our email, goringguiltypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on our Instagram at goringguiltypodcast or on our TikTok account at Go On Guilty Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that so far. I know, yeah, keep you in suspense for the next episode. And remember, we won't judge if... Gore is your guilty pleasure. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.